Grace, mercy, and peace, all these are yours in abundance through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. As I mentioned in the beginning of our service, my sermon isn't going to be based on any of the three readings, but instead is going to be based on Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. It's only fitting as we go into the Advent season and we're in the Advent season that we look at God's very first promise of a Savior. A Savior who was to be born in Bethlehem. And this account shows us the nature of our sin and it also shows us God's tremendous grace to sinners like you and me. I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19 now. If you want to open that up in a pew Bible or on your phone, something like that, to follow along, uh, you are welcome to do so. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground.
since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. If you're passing through Canton, Ohio, you're probably going to stop at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In fact, there's probably not really much else to do in Canton, Ohio. And in the Hall of Fame, there are the most famous artifacts and pictures and jerseys of the players who played in the NFL. And next to them, there's always a little plaque describing them, right? It'll say something like Vince Lombardi's coach, coach of the Green Bay Packers, something like that. Now, I'm guessing if you were putting together a hall of fame of Bible chapters, Genesis 3 would have to make it in that museum, right? What would the plaque next to it say? Well, on the Bible that I use for my personal study, the heading for this chapter is the fall. Works, I think. But the more I studied and meditated on this text this week, I thought to myself, you know, that would actually be not the best title, I don't think, for this section of Scripture. He said, what about something like this? God's love for sinners. The Lord God promises a Savior. Well, it's maybe a little long. How about the rescue? After all, a rescue presupposes a fall. Now, it maybe isn't all that catchy of a thing. The fall maybe sounds a little better. But that really is what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, we see a fall, but we see God's promise of a rescue already at the Garden of Eden, right after the first sin. It's not uncommon nowadays to hear someone say, you know what, there's not really such a thing as sin. Sin is just sort of a concept that we've come up with. Or someone will say, you know, actually society is the one that gets to dictate what a sin is or what a sin isn't. Well, engaging in conversations like this can possibly be helpful. But as we read Genesis chapter 3, the truth is so apparent and glaring before us. Sin has now entered the world, and what is God going to do about it? I have to ask you a question. Why was Christmas even necessary? If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that there was a perfect communion with God. The animals lived in harmony with one another. Think of the reading we had from Isaiah. All of the desert and things, they had grass, they had water. It was a perfect world. They lived in perfect harmony with God and with one another. But then the serpent came along. The devil. He came up to Eve, asked the same question that he's really been asking ever since. Did God really say that you don't, shouldn't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden? Did he really say that to you? You know, if you eat from that tree, you will know good and evil just like God. In fact, God is actually holding something back from you. So do it. 
He doesn't want you to be like him. And they ate. That shows us something about the nature of our sin, doesn't it? So often, the devil tempts us in ways that make it seem like God has not given us everything that we need. We perceive some sort of a lack and we chase after that thing, whatever it might be, because it's more attractive and it seems better to us in the moment than God's perfect love and perfect communion with God. And that is exactly what Adam and Eve did. And look at what the results of that are. They saw that they were naked. Shame had now entered this world. Sin had entered this world. And so what do they do? Just as quickly as the light of the world was on them, now the darkness of sin was upon them, and so they run away. They have to get away from God. That voice that once brought them so much comfort and joy as God walked among them in the cool of the evening now could only bring terror. And they realized that they were naked, so they had to put coverings on themselves. Can you even imagine a world where there's so little shame that you can walk around naked and not feel any sense of shame or disregard. But that was lost. And so what does God do? At this moment, he could say, enough. Enough with my creation. Enough with Adam and Eve and the animals and the serpent. I've, I've had it. I'm destroying the whole thing. But he doesn't do that. He comes to Adam and Eve and asks them just a very simple question. Where are you? The question is really not unlike the mother who asks, Johnny, did you take a cookie from the cookie jar? Both mom and God knew the answer. God knew that Adam and Eve had fallen into sin. Mom knows Johnny's taken the cookie. No matter how carefully he stole it. But instead of just doing away with his creation, he looks for creation and he looks for Adam and Eve to simply confess their sin. Lord, we have sinned against you. We have gone against your command. We did eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, but instead, Adam says, it's the woman you put here with me. She made me do it. And in doing that, he's not only blaming his wife, who he loved so very much, but is also blaming God and saying, look God, if you hadn't even done that, this wouldn't have happened. It tells us something about sin, doesn't it? So often sin has sort of this bulldozer effect. A bulldozer goes through a heap of rubble and it can pick up the first stuff, but as more and more rubble gets into that bulldozer, what happens? It spills around the sides, doesn't it? That's kind of like what happens here with Adam. First he has the sin. God comes to him and says, confess your sin. Right? But Adam says, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm going to blame Eve. He blames Eve. He piles more on. Eventually, he blames God before his sin is just spilling over completely. 
The same is true with us very often. That we commit a sin and God comes to us and says, repent of this sin. And we try to blame everything possible for that sin. No, you know, it really wasn't that bad. Society says it was okay, so it must be fine if I go and do it. Before we finally blame God and say, you know what, if you just hadn't put that command in order, then I never would have broken it. It tells us about our sin. There's a statement I remember from history class, and I'm going to paraphrase it slightly. But the professor got up in class and he said, you know, history teaches us not to go down a bad path. It doesn't teach us how to take a bad path better. Okay, so history doesn't teach us how to go down a bad path. It teaches us not to go down that bad path. We can't go down it better. But so often we think that we're trailblazers in a sense. Ah, yeah, they did that wrong, but I'll, I'll do the same thing, but it, I'll do it right this time. But it's just not possible. Why is that? Well, ever since into the fall into sin, we have inherited a, a sinful nature. And no matter how hard we try to reform that sinful nature, no matter how hard we try to change that sinful nature, we can't. David says, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so every day we will live in sin as we live in this world. And God will continue to ask the question that he asked to Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? He will call us to repentance. Truthfully, if God left us in the darkness of sin, there would be no hope. And we would be in despair. But thanks be to God, right? Because as soon as sin has entered in the world, it's still hot, fresh out of the oven. He comes to Adam and Eve and says, you know what? Yes, you have sinned. And there are consequences, right? As we read in the end of our, our verses, pain and childbearing. You will have sweat on your brow and work the fields your whole life. But he also comes to them with the very first gospel promise. As soon as they sin, he says what? In 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He could have let Adam and Eve linger in their sin, wondering, you know what? What's going to happen next? But he didn't want that. And so he comes and he says, I'm going to send a Savior. I want to say just a couple of things about that first promise. First is this. He didn't say exactly who that baby boy was going to be. Can you imagine the devil every single time a boy was born thinking, is that going to be the Messiah? Is that going to be the one who was to crush my head? The second thing is this. The people in the Old Testament ask that question that's the theme for our sermon quite often. Where are you? Where are you? And throughout the Old Testament, God provided more and more prophecies so they would have a clearer and clearer picture of who this Messiah was going to be. 
and where he was going to come and what he was going to be for the people. And then in Bethlehem he came. But he wasn't exactly the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting. He didn't come as a strong, triumphant king to win military battles and to defeat the Romans. No, he came gentle, humble, mild, in a manger. But that Messiah, who is Christ the Lord, that is exactly who you and I needed to come for us. We needed someone who would come and live a perfect life under the law, not breaking the law even one time, so that we could be reconciled to God for all of the times that we had sinned, and even for our sinful natures. We too ask this question often, don't we? Where are you, Lord? And what does he say? Wait patiently with patient endurance because I am going to come again and take you to be with me. And so we can say that God comes to us and asks us that question too. Where are you? And in that question, he calls us to repentance. Yes, repentance has two parts, you may remember from the catechism. Repentance, first in repentance, we show that we are sorry for our sins. But then we believe in the promises of God that he sent a Messiah at just the perfect time for you and for me. So yes, the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. We will live in repentance all the days of our life, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, just like we did this morning. But it doesn't end there. It ends with Jesus saying, you are forgiven. Because of this first promise, I will send my son and I kept that promise and he sent his son Jesus who died for you so you have that eternal life. And what does he promise to us? That he will come again. And he will. He forgives you. Wait patiently. Endure because your king is coming again to take you to be with him forever in heaven. the story of Advent. That's the story of Christmas. Amen.